All right. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in that time of praise and worship. And now, saints, it's time for us to get into God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 25 this morning. Exodus 19, 7 through 25. And while you're doing that, let me just kind of share some of the things the Lord's been putting on my heart. So one of the things I do, in addition to, obviously, my main focus is studying God's Word and, and the Scriptures and the Bible and getting to know it more and more. But at the same time, it's important that we're aware of current events. And so one of the things I typically do on any given day is look at the news. And I'll look at various news outlets. I don't just pick one. I'll pick a variety. I recognize that people are limited in their information, biased sometimes in their perspective. And generally, I assume I'm not getting the whole picture. So what I try to do is get as much of the picture as I can from as many places as I can. So I'll do that typically uh, most days, Sunday being usually the only exception, though I've been guilty of looking at the news on Sunday as well, to be perfectly honest with you. But one of the things I've observed is every time we think things can't get stranger or worse, it something seems to happen. And for a while now, we've dealt with riots in the streets, protesting, that's been happening in some of the major U.S. cities. And it's this is kind of a sad state of affairs where you almost get used to that. You almost get used to the fact there's going to be protesters and rioters and they're going to take over parts of a city and uh, you're, you're not happy with it, but it's kind of the way things are going. And then last week, another story kind of happened that it really bothered me. It really disturbed me. It started in Kenosha, Wisconsin. There was a 911 call placed to a home, and there was apparently a man there who was not supposed to be there, and he was also wanted on a warrant, and the police went to arrest him. They get into a struggle, and the struggle, he is shot. He ends up in the hospital, is, is not dead. Apparently, he's paralyzed. As a result of that, protesting and rioting happens. But more and more now, as these protesters and rioters are being allowed to roam the streets, you're starting to see armed militia coming in both locally and from other places to try to stop businesses from being destroyed and, and more things happening. But of course, at the same time, even if they mean well, it creates a even more volatile situation. And that's what led up to the shootings in Wisconsin last week, where a 17-year-old who was, and I, I tried to watch as much of the video as I could. I heard one person say that he was a mass shooter and he was doing all this stuff. Then I found videos where the kid showed up with a, a medical bag and he was trying to help anybody who was hurt. You can see him protecting a business and then it looks like there's a trash can on fire and he runs up with a fire extinguisher and puts out the fire and so people are chasing him and he's running and he turns around because he's being attacked. One guy reaches for his gun, another guy swings at his head with a skateboard and he shoots them. And then he ends up, of course, getting arrested. A couple of people died in that result, and then one 
was injured. And I'm just thinking to myself, is this where we've come? Is is this where we are? And it, it just really, it bothered me. Is this going to be the new normal? I mean, is it going to get worse? Is there going to be civil war? Is there going to be all this kind of violence? And more than that, what does the Bible have to say about all this? Well, of course, we know the scripture was written many, many years ago, centuries ago, millennia ago. And so in one sense, we, we're not sure. Well, what, what does scripture say about this exact situation in the 21st century? But at the same time, friends, let's not forget when we look at scripture that human nature fundamentally has not changed. And if we look at the scriptures and we look carefully and we're willing to look at but also past the cultural uniqueness of some of these circumstances, I think what we see is there are perennial issues, that there were issues in the Bible, there were times in the Bible, there were cultural moments in the Bible that are very much like the cultural moment that we're seeing today. And one of the phrases from the Bible that comes to mind from the Old Testament is this repeated phrase in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I believe that's where we are in United States culture. We are coming to a place where more and more we're devolving into what looks like anarchy. And everyone is simply doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes. Now, that's exactly what happened in ancient Israel in the times of the judges. Now, why was that? Why was everyone doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes? Well, there were two reasons. One is the reason that everyone jumps to first, and it's not completely untrue, but it doesn't solve the problem. And the second is the deep and lasting problem. So number one, that line I just quoted to you from Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Some of you that know that passage and you know that book well, you know that I omitted a, a, a phrase that usually goes with it and it's right before. What was it? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, what the writer of Judges is, is letting us know, yes, they're preparing us for monarchy, but it's this basic idea, it's this basic impulse we all have, which is when you see anarchy and you see everybody doing what's right in your own eyes, the, the immediate natural thought, and this isn't wrong, it's just the immediate natural thought, it is there's a political solution. There must be a political solution. If everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, then with the writer of Judges, it's because there's no king in Israel. Now, I want to point out that is, that's probably how many of us feel. Am I wrong? When we look out and we see what's going on, the, the first thing we think is, well, there's got to be a political solution to this problem. Everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes. They're burning things down and they're shooting people and they're doing this and doing that. There's got to be a political solution. Again, that's actually partially true. I think it's partially true. When we're being told in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel, what we're not saying is that that didn't matter. 
what it goes on to show is, no, the monarchy, and particularly David, the Davidic king, the Davidic monarch, it certainly did good for Israel. It did make things better. It did, to some extent, prevent the kind of anarchy and chaos you saw back in Judges. But what's the rest of the story of Israel? Did installing a king, did installing a certain form of political polity, did, did a particular person, did it solve the problem? The answer is no. Because what we see is not only ultimately does the monarchy fail and the kingdom ends up divided, but even the ideal king, the best we can come up with as sinners, David, is still an immoral man. And by many of our standards, he would fall terribly short of being permitted an office in the church or something of that nature. Furthermore, his office, by the way, we forget this, was plagued by scandal. He was having to run for his life from his own son. And his son mocked and humiliated his father. David was living in caves. He was basically homeless, running for his life. And his son went up on top of the palace and made sure everyone knew that he was sleeping with his father's wives to humiliate him and, and shame him. It was sort of the ancient family takedown book, like a lot of the books that come out about presidents whenever they're running. It was sort of that political takedown of the ancient world burning all the bridges. So friends, our first and natural reaction to seeing everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is to say, we need a king. We need to change the political structure. And again, that's not wrong. But what we've got to do is see past that and recognize that's not the ultimate solution. Because at at worst, we, we, we get a Saul who's going to be cruel and use the, the power to take advantage of us and, and to suppress the people he represents. But at best, you get a David. And David was an imperfect man, a sinner, a fallen man, a man who was certainly not perfect in the exercise of his power. And so what is it we really need? What do we need today? What's the answer from a biblical perspective? It's the same answer in the day of the judges. The reason everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it wasn't just because they didn't have a king. It's because they lost sight of the holiness of God. The holiness of God is probably, I would dare say, perhaps the least popular attribute of God. In beginning this morning's service, I asked each of you to state an attribute that you're thankful for. And many of you shared exactly what would be the first thing on my mind. I would, I would probably say the love of God, the, the sovereignty of God is particularly comforting to me in this season of life and, and at various seasons of disappointment and pain in my life. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the omnipresence of God. All these things are great. But if many of us are honest and we're asked... One of the most important attributes of God in the entire Bible is one that often never makes our list. The attribute of holiness. Friends, do you realize that of all the attributes of God in the Bible, there's only one repeated 
three times, stated to the third degree, holy, holy, holy. The scripture never says God is love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. It says holy, holy, holy. Friends, as Israel in the time of the judges lost sight of the holiness of God, and that led to a fragmentation and a downward spiral of human and social and individual depravity that corrupted society. Friends, I believe we are seeing the same thing today. Yes, there's a com political component, and I don't ignore that. I acknowledge that is important, and that's a part of it. But what I must affirm as a minister of the Word of God is that that is not the issue. The issue is that man in the United States, and this is not just non-believers, but many believers have lost sight of the holiness of God. And so this morning, as we look at Exodus 19, 7 through 25, we are going to see a manifestation of the holiness of God. We're going to see a reminder of an often forgotten attribute of God. And we're going to see the response of human beings when they actually encounter the reality and presence of the holiness of God. And my hope is going to be that we too will encounter and remember the holiness of God. And that as we respond to the holiness of God, we will display this reverence, this awe towards the holiness of God to the world around us. And by the grace of God, perhaps... Our country, our culture can revive our sense of awe and fear and reverence of the holiness of God. And so if you have your Bibles, let's read the passage together as a whole. We're going to pray and we'll get into this morning's study. Exodus 19, 7 through 25, this is God's word. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, 
do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we just pray that the unbelief that blinds our eyes from seeing, believing, and being in holy fear and awe of your holiness would be removed from our eyes, Lord. We pray in place of that unbelief, you would grant faith, eyes to see who you are. Lord, if we have mistaken notions about you, Perhaps some people have never heard. They're new to the Bible. They're new to the Christian faith, and they've never heard that God is holy. Lord, we pray that you would grant them this vision of the holiness of God. Lord, for those of us who are familiar with this passage, and others like it in the Old Testament, but we've said to ourselves, God is not holy anymore. He was only holy to those people at that time, but we no longer have to think of God as holy. We no longer have to be in awe or fear or reverence of his awesome holiness. Lord, I pray you would correct that mistaken assumption. For you say in your holy word that I, the Lord, do not change. There is no shadow or variation due to turning. You are the immutable God. If you were holy then at Mount Sinai, you are holy today. But Lord, we do confess something has changed. Something has made the experience so that we can come before the same holy God, and yet we do not experience you in the same way as Israel at Mount Sinai. Lord, we pray you would make it clear why that is and cause us to be grateful. Lord, we pray if any of us, due to a lack of belief and understanding of your holiness, we are living unholy lives in some way or another. Maybe it's outwardly and it's obvious. Maybe it's not outward. Maybe it's internal. It's in our priorities. 
It's in our inability to look at anything going on in the world and to see that there is eternal and spiritual significance to all that is going on. Lord, we pray that we would recover that sense of your holiness, that you would move your people in holy fear to sanctify themselves, to live lives that are wholly pleasing to you. We pray now for a blessing over the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this is one of those passages where I think a lot of people, when they come across it, they're sort of weirded out. They're kind of like, who, who is this? Who, who is this God? This is not the God I know. Uh, many people, even if it's not a sort of formal, doctrinal, systematic theory, many people are impressed by the idea that the Bible seems to have two gods. A God of the Old Testament who's angry and when he appears he shakes the mountain and it almost turns into a volcano and there's lightning and thunder and, and basically like getting near God is the scariest thing and you don't want to do it anymore. I mean, that's a far cry from singing the lyrics to hymns like, Just a closer walk with thee. To the ancient Israelite at Sinai, that's exactly what they don't want. They don't, they don't have a picture of God as, as their friend or, or their buddy or, or whoever it is. No, God is this awesome and, and just scary, scary being that presents himself to them at these various moments in these various ways in which closeness might be a blessing in some ways, but it also feels like a cursing in others. So many people read passages like this, and this is certainly not an isolated incident. This kind of thing happens over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And so many people, when they come to the New Testament, they come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and you see Jesus, and we hear that Jesus is God. Well, you It makes people think there's two different gods happening here. But friends, I want to assert this morning, you do not have two different gods. That the holiness of God that we see in the Old Testament is true of God and even of Christ in the New Testament. Furthermore, I'm going to show you later this morning that admonitions to fear, to holy fear, and to reverence because of the holiness of God are not absent in the New Testament. They are actually present. As a matter of fact, there's exhortations to greater judgment to those who neglect the holiness of God now that the holiness of God has been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, but nevertheless, there's problems, there's tensions going on. Why, why does it seem like things are so different in the New Testament? Well, first of all, let's go backwards before we go forward. Take a look again at, at what's happening here in Exodus 19, 7 through 25. So God has saved Israel out of Egypt. They've seen his mighty acts demonstrated against Egypt, but they were able to sort of see it happen. But now the time has come for Israel to become God's people. So God graciously and without any any merit on part of Israel, God simply brought them out of Egypt. But now the right response to God's grace is obedience, faithfulness to the covenant that God makes with us. And so he's now bringing them into relationship. 
And of course, in the next chapter that we're going to be looking at, we have the famous 10 words or the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And so it's important to realize that the God who's going to command all those things is this God here, the God who is manifesting himself as holy, as glorious, as a God who is so holy that if sinners approach God in a way in which they have not been admitted to do, then they die instantaneously, that that's the God who is appearing here. But let's go backwards. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Is that the picture of God and God's relationship to man in the garden? No. In that picture, you see complete harmony. It's peace. There's no lightning. There's no thundering. There's no smoke. There's no spiritual volcano appearing on top of the mountain. There's no thundering. Those, there's no barriers where, gosh, if you get close to God, you're going to drop dead. No, we get this beautiful, harmonious picture of God forming man out of the dust of the ground, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. God creating out of Adam, Eve, his wife, and saying, this is very good. And God seems to be in this perfectly harmonious relationship. And yet here we are in Exodus 19 and things couldn't be more different. What happened? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. The answer to that is sin. Why is the holiness of God a problem? It's a problem because we are sinners. What we're seeing in Exodus 19 is what it looks like when a holy God manifests himself to sinful people. And so I think what we need to do in order to not only understand this passage, Exodus 19, 7 through 25, but to understand the rest of what you read, because you're going to come across a lot of weird stuff in the Old Testament, a lot of scary stuff, a lot of frightening stuff. And if you don't understand what's happening and why, I, I think we can wrongly attribute ill character to God in the Old Testament. That can lead us to positing that there's a different God in the New Testament. Oh, I, I, I prefer Jesus over this, this mean God. But I think what we have to understand is that two things happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. Two things. Number one, we all know that there was punishment. There was punishment pronounced on Adam and Eve, on Satan, the serpent, and their environment. And so there's the punishment and then the banishment from the garden of delight, the garden of pleasure. That's what the word Aden, Eden means, the garden of delight, the garden of pleasure. They've been banished from that. But there was another thing that happened. God himself, because of his holiness... And because the world and humanity became corrupted and unholy, God had to withdraw from the world. So there's two movements. There's man, sinful man, being banished from the world of perfect pleasure and delight that God initially created. And then there's the movement of God away from the world. Now, some people might look at that movement of God away from the world as a second punishment. But I would like to say that that's not the case. Rather, what you have is you have judgment and punishment on Adam and Eve for their sin, but God's distancing of himself is an act of grace. 
As a matter of fact, theologians refer to this as the generous distance of God. They call it the generous distance of God because you see right here in Exodus 19 what happens if sinful man approaches a holy God. Death ensues. And so it's actually out of love and grace God distances himself from sinful man because sinful man cannot dwell in God's holy presence. But what you're seeing here is God didn't give up on humanity. And the story of the Bible is that sinful man and holy God who are, who are separated by the sin, God is working to overcome that. And you're starting to see God overcoming it, but it's not overcome perfectly. And we see that because you see the eruption of the world and it's not this joyous, pleasurable, delightful experience like it would have been for Adam and Eve and like many of us associate with being with God in heaven when we die because we placed faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross for us. Rather, as God approaches and he seeks to fix this breach in the relationship, we see that the earth trembles. We see that man cowers. And so what we have is this holiness of God being manifested. And so that's why you're going to see these stories throughout the Old Testament as God is trying to draw near to sinners and creating a way in which they really can. The Israelites had a real relationship with God, but it was, notice friends, it was always at a distance. Notice here in this story that the Israelites could only go to the foot of the mountain and no further. The priests could only go up a little way and no further. And even Moses is having to go back and forth, back and forth. And the relationship that he's mediating is this one in which the people are so scared. Later they say, tell God not to talk to us anymore. Tell him not to talk to us. It's too traumatic for us. The holiness of God is too traumatic for us sinners. Moses, you talk to him alone. So what we're seeing is the imperfection of Moses in his role as mediator. He's really bringing in a real relationship. And yet that mediation of an imperfect man, Moses, is demonstrated in the trauma of this encounter of sinners with a holy God. And so what I want to do this morning is not so much get into all the details of this text, though I will comment on some of them, but rather I feel like it's important that I use this text because it's an example of the demonstration of the holiness of God to talk about the biblical concept as such of the holiness of God. And by talking about what is the holiness of God, how do we relate to the holiness of God, and what difference does the holiness of God make on how we live our lives, I hope that this will sort of become a key that we can use as we read the rest of the Bible and even as we look out at the world and we look out at the news and we look out in the godlessness and the fact that there's just no fear of God, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. I hope it will help us to understand why, from a spiritual perspective, these things are happening and what we can do to be a part of God's plan to putting things right. 
And so let me say a few things about holiness, the holiness of God in the Bible. Uh, number one, let's start with language. What is holiness? What does the word holiness mean? Well, the Hebrew term for holiness is kadosh. Kadosh. And the verb form to make holy is kadosh. And kodesh or kadosh means to separate, to consecrate. And so it's this idea of God being totally separate in some way. We'll talk a little bit more about the ways. There's at least two ways. But God is holy. He is separate. He is set apart from us and apart from the world. The Greek use or the Greek version of this same word is hagios. And you'll see that used both in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. You'll also encounter that same word in the New Testament itself. So kodesh for holiness in the Hebrew Bible, hagios in the Greek New Testament, the verb for Hebrew, kadash, and in Greek it's hagiadzo, again, to set apart, to separate. And then, of course, by extension, as it relates to God, to make holy or to make sacred. Now, in what ways is God holy? In what ways is he kodesh? What ways is he hagias? Uh, specifically, as it relates to us. I want to talk about that. Because, of course, when we're thinking about God, who is a being unlike us, we, we need examples from the earthly human realm to be able to figure out what exactly is God. What is holiness? What is the holiness of God in relation to us? The holiness of God can be thought of in two ways. First, God is holy. He's set apart. He's separate from us in terms of his being. He's holy in terms of his being. Philosophers and theologians use the fancy word ontological. God is ontologically holy, separate, sacred from everything created. This understanding of the holiness of God, the ontological holiness, the holiness of his being, what that does for us, friends, is it preserves the creator-creature distinction. One of the fundamental beliefs of the Bible and of Israel was that the creator is not a creature. The creature can never be said or worshipped or believed to be the creator. For the creator is holy, separate, sacred. God is not a part of the world. He's not a thing. He's not a God of your own devising, one that you make up. If he were, holiness would probably not make your list. If we were going to make a God of our own devising again, it would probably just be love. And that is sort of the God of the popular creaturely imagination in our culture today. God is just a God of love. Of course, as Christians, we could build a bridge and say, yes, yes, we believe God is love too. But what's the problem? Holiness without love simply becomes permission. 
it becomes permission to unholiness. So we have to make sure that when we're talking about God, when we're thinking about God, that we preserve the holiness of his being. He is nothing in creation. He is not the sun. He is not the moon. He is not the stars. He is not a beautiful sunset. He is not nature. He's not the trees. He's not the mountains. He's not Mother Earth. He's not your husband. He's not your wife. He's not your children. He's not romantic love. He's not love of friends. He's not love of family. He is holy, set apart in his being. There is none like him. Theologians use the term incommunicable attributes. They use that word to say, though there's things about God we can share in. Because if you remember in Genesis, what does it say about human beings in relationship to God? We are made in the image of God. That means there's some things, some things about God that we too can participate in. But the Bible is careful and theologians have even created technical language to preserve the mystery of the truth of the Bible, that the God is wholly separate and sacred in his being. And there are things about God we do not share in and we will never share in. For instance, you will never by definition share in the infinity of God. God has neither beginning nor end. Friends, you and I both know that in Christ, in the resurrection and life to come, thankfully, there's no end. That's actually an amazing thought. Many people deny that in our world today, that the man is not eternal, but eternal is not the same thing as infinite. We're going to have eternal life, Scripture says, a life that won't end. It never says you will have infinite life, a life that never even came into existence because it always was. God is infinite. We will never share in the infinite nature of God. God has aseity. What is aseity? Aseity means self-existence. He doesn't have existence derived from any other thing. Rather, his existence consists within himself. He is his own being and depends on nothing or no one for his being. That is certainly not true for us. And we recognize that in volatile times like this. We can feel like we have a saity. I work hard and I'm really sharp and I've dotted all my I's and crossed my T's and, and I've made sure that I saved up here and then I have this over here and these fences over here. And, I, and But then all this stuff starts going wrong in the world and you realize you don't have a saity. You depend on this system, don't you? You depend upon this political system. You depend on the infrastructure of the country. You depend upon the general welfare, as the Founding Fathers said, of society as a whole for your existence. And when those things are threatened, your very being is, is threatened. Guess what, friends? God never experiences that because he has a saity, existence within himself. He's all-powerful. We, can, we cannot possibly know what it is like to have power without any limits. Any power that human beings experience is limited and finite and can even be corrupted morally and ethically. But with God, there is no limits. So there are the incommunicable attributes of God. 
He, we are made in God's image. God is not made in our image. So when we speak of God as holy, we can also speak of his transcendence. I think one of the things that's happened, there's, there's a number of things, but one of the things that's happened in the modern world is that God has become strictly imminent to us. And there's good reason for this, although it's misguided, that this idea of the focus of imminence is because we see Jesus, the transcendent God who is above and beyond and his holy other has drawn near in the person of Christ. Think about this, the transcendence of the holy God who manifested himself at Sinai such that the earth shook and the people of God trembled from a great distance is the same God who appeared in an upper room in human flesh and upon whom the disciple John rested his head. No wonder we, we could get so focused on the nearness of God and the imminence of God because God is drawn imminently near in the person of Jesus. So our error, friends, is not in seeing that in Jesus God has come close. It is in then thinking that somehow God in his being and Jesus as the Son of God has somehow lost his holiness, lost his transcendence, but he hasn't. Rather, it has been veiled. God's transcendence is revealed so that his imminence could be revealed. And so what scripture calls us to do is not trade the transcendent holy God of the Old Testament for the imminent and permissive God of the New, but rather learn how the two meet together in the person of Jesus. And so, friends, there's the creator and creature distinction. God will always be holy forever in this way. And in this sense, we're not called to be holy like God in that respect. We're not sinners because we're finite. There's nothing sinful about being finite. There's nothing sinful about being limited in what you know or in what you're able to do. There's nothing sinful about that. So this is an area we've got to understand. This is an area of the holiness of God that relates specifically to who God is in a way we can never participate. God is completely set apart from us, and that keeps us from turning God into an idol and into a projection of our own imagination because we don't have a framework. We don't have an earthly temporal framework for understanding this perfect transcendence and holiness of God. But the holiness of God is used in a second way in Scripture, and that is in a moral way, that morally, ethically, in his character, God is wholly set apart and sacred. This means that while the first incommunicable attribute, that God is all-powerful, okay, well, that's just power. You can have a powerful person. That doesn't mean they're good. But this other side of holiness, which we can and are called, we are called to participate to some degree, is called a communicable attribute. And that means that not only is God all powerful, but he is all good. 
that whenever God uses his power, it is always for good. It is never evil. It is never wrong. It is never mistaken. It is never abused because God is perfectly holy. He's still set apart from us, even in this respect, not because we're not moral beings. We certainly are. Not even because we can't, to some extent, share in that moral quality of God's holiness. But the way in which he will always be perfectly set apart is in that, that he is holy, holy, entirely holy. There is no sin, no imperfection, no unholiness of God whatsoever. And I want to suggest that when Israel encounters God here in Sinai in Exodus 19, there's a certain amount of, even if they weren't sinners, just, just the transcendence and awesomeness of the all-powerful God breaking into the world. That could be a, a powerful experience. And yet the primary reason, the primary reason that the earth is shaking the primary reason that the voice of God is not delightful, but fearful. The primary reason that Israel can only come to the foot of the mountain and not up. The only reason that if Israel goes past the foot of the mountain, they will be killed instantaneously is because they are unholy. What we're seeing is a picture of unholy man approaching a holy God. This is what results. And so God is holy in these two ways, holy in his being, holy in his moral, ethical character. Now, what is God's holiness like? You might say, I've given you grammatical definitions, I've given you abstract definitions, but what is it like? What is his holiness like? Like, some people read this and they think it's just kind of arbitrary. Oh, God's holy, but he's just trying to prove a point by doing this. I, no, I want to say that's not the case. I want to say this is actually the natural result of the manifestation of the holiness of God that we call glory, for that's what glory is. The manifestation of the holiness of God. This is what you get when the holiness of God is manifested in glory and sinful man is in its presence. This is what happens. So if you ask me what it looks like, I'd say it looks like Exodus 19, 7 through 25. There's numerous other examples of what God's holiness looks like. I'll just give you a few. The holiness of God looks like the story of Uzzah. Do you remember the story of Uzzah? It's another one of those stories where people, when they read it, they go, what's wrong with God? Why is he? He's terrible. He's angry. What's going on? It's the story of Israel bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And, and the oxen pulling the Ark stumble. And the Ark is about to tip off. And Uzzah puts up his hand and touches it and drops down dead. And even David, think about this, even David is upset at God. So if, you're, if you read the Bible and you're, and you're kind of troubled by what's going on, you're in good company. David was upset at God too. Like, how could you do that, God? He was just trying to help. The thing was falling off. Friends, 
if you don't understand that this is the holiness of God. When the holiness of God is manifested in a place as it was in the Ark of the Covenant, if sinful man ever, just like here in Exodus 19, 7 through 25, if sinful man transgresses the boundary between a holy, holy, holy God and sinful man, death ensues. We see this later in the story of Aaron's sons, the priests, Nadab and Abihu. God prescribes how he will be worshipped and the transgression of those boundaries is for sinful man to encroach upon a holy God. And what happens? Nadab and Abihu, the scripture says, offered strange fire. They, they did something that went beyond and was against the law of God with respect to worship. And they too were struck dead. Friends, some of you might think, oh, well, that's the Old Testament angry God. I hate to burst your bubble, but you see this in the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple examples. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Did you ever wonder what that was about? The story was that the early church, so this is the Christian dispensation. This is after the advent of the Messiah, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God and the formation of the early Christian church. And we're, we're told that when people saw the, the glory of God being manifested through the gifts of the Spirit, moved by the new covenant in the Messiah's blood, the people just started selling everything they had and were giving it to God. Something that points back once again to the Old Testament where Israel, when God first told them to build them a temple, they were giving so much, God eventually had to say, stop giving us so much money. You're giving us way too much money. When God moves, people just want to give everything they have. And God actually says, no, we don't need any more. We're done. So the early church is giving everything they can. And Ananias and Sapphira, they want to look like they're giving to God. They don't love God. They don't fear God. They're not moved by the holiness of God. They have not been sanctified by the blood of Jesus the Messiah, but they want to look like they are. They want to pretend they're supporting the work of the ministry. They're worshiping Almighty God. And so they come to the apostles and they give an amount and, and they lie. They lie to Peter. They lie to the Holy Spirit. They lie to God. They transgress the boundary. They immorally, they weren't even told they had to give. And yet they lied about how much they actually made and how much they were giving. And the story is, they both dropped down dead. New Testament story. What happens when sinful man encroaches upon a holy God in the New Testament? We see death ensues. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how those at Corinth, some of them, were eating and drinking. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, in an unworthy manner. And what happened, did Paul say, to those who were doing so, who sinful man encroaching upon a holy God? He said, for this reason, some of you are sick and some of you have even died. Once again, this idea of the holiness of God and what happens when sinful man encroaches upon, we see it 
in the New Testament as well. But let me go a little bit beyond that. The holiness of God, okay, we, we see it. We see it happening. We see its effects, but what else could I liken it to? And I want to share with you an illustration that might help you to understand, because I still suspect at this point that some of you, or certainly someone out there that might be watching the message later, is still kind of attributing these, these acts of God and these people falling down dead because they, they encroached upon his holiness as being an arbitrary act of God, as though it is not something that happens due to necessity of holiness and unholiness meeting together. So let me attempt an imperfect, but I think helpful analogy. So let me say this about the holiness of God. I want to say that the holiness of God can be likened to the sun, S-U-N. The holiness of God, think about this for a moment, can be likened to the sun. From a certain distance, the sun is good. We need the sun. We can't exist without the sun. Even if someone were to deny the existence of the sun and, and attempt to live in the shade all of their life, nevertheless, the sun would be necessary for their existence and the sun would be good. The sun is good if the distance and the relationship is right. So it is with sinful man and the holiness of God. But just as we see sinful man and a holy God encountering, what would happen, theoretically, if the earth moved closer to the sun? We need it for its existence. We'd be dead if it wasn't here. We call it good. It exists whether we believe it does or not, and we need it for our existence. Yet what happens? If, we, if the earth starts moving closer to the sun. Let me read to you what one scientist said. According to one scientist's projection, if the earth moves just 0.01 AUs, astronomical units, if the earth moves just 0.01 AUs closer to the sun, the surface temperature of the earth would become 2,000 200 degrees Celsius, which is 3,992 degrees Fahrenheit. What happens if the earth gets closer to the sun? We dissolve. We are burnt to a crisp. We become nothing. We cannot exist in the presence of the glory, the holiness, if you would, of the sun from such a distance. In other words, due to our constitution and the constitution of our planet, we would die. The sun is like the holiness of God. It is an unparalleled, unimaginable brilliance which a human due to their sinfulness, cannot approach lest they be burnt to nothing. That's the idea, friends. It's, it's hard to describe metaphysically what the holiness of God is. 
but this is the effect. It's, it's the same effect of a human being drawing closer to the sun. You just can't do it. And do you blame the sun? You don't go, oh, horrible sun. I wish you never existed. You're being morally terrible, sun. No, the sun is good. You need it. It's the relationship. That's the issue. It's the constitution of the earth itself and of human bodies that makes that change in relationship a problem. So we have a tension and a plot in the Bible. There's a tension and a plot right here in this text. The Bible teaches that human beings were made for intimacy with God. We were made. Have you ever wondered why you're dissatisfied? Do you ever wonder why it doesn't matter what relationships you have or don't have, what job you have or don't have, how much money you get or don't get, or what award you get or success you achieve or what reputation you gain? In the end, it's not enough. It's because we were made for more. It wasn't because those things were necessarily bad. The relationship, maybe it wasn't bad. Maybe the job wasn't bad. The money wasn't bad. The achievement wasn't bad. But you weren't made for that. You were made for something else. We were made for intimacy with God. And we will never, never be satisfied fully and completely as human beings until we know our Creator in an intimate fashion. But there's the tension. We'll never be satisfied until we have intimacy with God. And yet because of sin, because of our fallenness, we can never have it. If you attempt to have intimacy with God, closeness with God, what you find on your own, apart from a mediator, is that the relationship is terrible. It is terrible and terrifying. It is frightening. It is traumatic. You want to say, God, just don't talk anymore. So what do we do? How? How in the world are we going to solve this problem? We're made for intimacy with God. We'll never truly be happy unless we're, we know God intimately. We cannot know God intimately because if we do, we will drop down dead. What is the answer? The Bible begins to give an answer right here in Exodus 9, 7 through 25. If you'll notice, there's an awfully busy man getting a workout in this section. Apparently it's leg day for Moses at the gym. Because if you notice over and over, and some scholars have noticed this seems to be overly repetitious. But what we see is Moses is going up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. I mean, this sound, his legs have to be burning. The lactic acid has to be building up. He has to be dripping with sweat, especially all the fire and everything else, not to mention the stress and anxiety of all that's going on all around him. But Moses is going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. What we're being told here, friends, is that this seemingly irresolvable tension between the holiness of God and the intimacy we were made to have with him, and the unholiness of man, and the fact we can never have intimacy with God on our own. The solution is being presented here through the idea of a mediator. What Israel is being taught is Israel 
in order to be in a relationship with me, there must be someone who represents you. There must be someone who will come before and stand before my presence. Someone who can see my glory. Now we're told that Moses had a unique relationship with God. One of my favorite lines in the Old Testament comes from Exodus 33. And it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Friends, that is a different relationship than the one the rest of Israel has with God at Sinai. Am I right? That is a different relationship. The mediator must enjoy a different relationship with God. The mediator must be able to come up before the presence of God. And Moses was invited in an unprecedented manner for a fallen, sinful man. He was invited close, not in perfect union, but close to the glory of God. In fact, later we're told Moses was so close to the glory of God that one time when he came down from the mountain, his face was shining and the glory of the Lord was being manifest in his face. And it was so scary once again, just like the scariness of the appearance of God here at Sinai, that they asked Moses, put a veil over your face. We, we don't want to see the glory of God in your face. We are too scared. Friends, we are being taught that the only way that a holy God who is set apart and sacred, separate, and not only as being, but in his moral, perfect character, and a unsinful men and women like us. The only way that chasm can be breached is through a mediator. But there was a problem. This mediator was not perfect himself. We actually see later that this great man, Moses, this great leader, great man of God, whom I respect tremendously, one of the greatest leaders in all of human history, and yet Moses himself sinned. Moses failed. Moses, sadly and tragically, was forbidden to enter into the promised land to which he was leading these people for 40 years years. Even Moses. Furthermore, we see Israel later departing from the covenant of God, forgetting about God, forgetting about the holiness of God, forgetting their need for a mediator, mocking their need for a mediator, blurring the creator-creature distinction, and creating God in their own image. And so God promised that a better covenant would come, and the better covenant required a better mediator. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one, friends, the reason you can look at the New Testament and not get the sense of Sinai before us in Exodus 19 is not because God has changed. He is every bit as much holy as he ever was. The difference is Jesus. The difference is the covenant. The difference is the mediator himself. Christ is the difference. So friends, look at this text and understand this too would be our relationship to God at best. We're invited somewhat near, but we can't get intimate. We cannot be close. And we don't want to because we're terrified 
It is because Jesus has come near to us. His glory and holiness was veiled in human flesh. He took upon our sinfulness, the sinfulness that keeps human beings from entering into intimate union with the holy God. He has paid the price for on the cross himself. This truth of Jesus as the better mediator and the holiness of God and how the holiness of God was never meant to be lost by followers of Jesus. We need to recover the holiness of God. God did not stop being holy. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that the author of Hebrews not only sees that Jesus is the better Moses and the better covenant, the better mediator who cleanses the sins of the people so they can have intimate union with God through Christ, but he also in the very same place says that that it's remembering the holiness of God for the people of God today that prompts us to live holy lives. Friends, whenever there's unholiness of living, there is a loss of the sense of the holiness of God. I don't need to go do a poll in American culture to ask if people have lost sight of the holiness of God. Friends, all I need to do is two things. One, turn on the news. I've seen enough. I've seen all I need to see. Mankind in the United States of America has totally lost sight of the holiness of God. The unholiness, yes, we want it limited and managed if we can through political and social and legal structures that will never solve the problem, nor did the law solve the problem of sin in Israel. Neither did the monarchy. Friends, the problem out there is they have lost sense of the holiness of God and the standing that sinners have before a holy God. The second problem is this. When I look in the mirror each morning. The problem, friends, as Christians, and we have to remember this, the problem is not just out there. It's in here. We can easily, and, and the news is very good at doing this, They're, they create an us versus them dichotomy. There's the bad guys and the good guys, the righteous and the unrighteous. But the problem is, the problem is, the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. The famous Russian writer who wrote one of the most important and monumental books of the 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and his book, The Gulag Archipelago, talking about the communist dictatorship and takeover and tyranny and prison camps in Russia, made this famous statement. The line between good and evil does not run through political parties through nations or states, but through every single human heart. Solzhenitsyn was right. The problem is not just out there, though there's a problem out there. There's a problem in here. We need to be able to see that one of the reasons one of the reasons that so many people are not fearing the holiness of God 
is because God's own people are failing to acknowledge the holiness of God. Friends, how can we expect the world, non-believers, non-Christians, to fear the holiness of God when God's own people do not fear God? They will not live their lives holy for the glory of God. They will not give everything they have to God. They will not live for God. They will not change their thinking. They will not change their priorities. They will not change their beliefs. The mission of the church is not for God's glory. They're not going to obey the Bible when the Bible says obey your leaders. They're going to do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. Friends, I've been seeing this in the American church for decades. Many Christians, churchgoers, are doing what is right in their own eyes. That's why we have this thing called Christian consumerism and the phrase church hopping. People that don't fear God, they just want what's right in their own eyes. And they'll go from church to church to church to church to church shopping to see who will ever it will do what they think is right. There's no fear of God in the lives of many, many people. And like I say, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. We need to self-examine. Do we fear God? Do I fear the holiness of God more than I fear anything out in the world? That is a question that we must ask. But again, some of you, it's so strongly in your mind that, well, Jesus took care of that. Grace means God's not holy and I don't have to worry about it and I don't need to change. Friend, let me, don't take my word for it, let me show you from the scriptures how not only is this true that God is as holy as he ever was, not only are you to change your life today because of the holiness of God demanding that you change, but that is exactly what is being said here in Exodus 19 today. So for those of you that would like to turn with me, turn to the back of your Bible now, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 12 is that the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting and referring our very passage in Exodus this morning. This is an amazing text. So this is Hebrews chapter 12. 12. And I want to look at specifically verses 18 through 24. I'm going to show you a little before and after also. But look at this, friends. Notice how the writer of the Hebrews, writing to Christians, that's you and me, references Exodus 19 and said the holiness of God still applies today. This is God's word. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you, that's you and me, have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. You see, friends, the writer of Hebrews is directly referring to our passage this morning. And what he's saying is not that God has changed. God has not changed. The same holy God who, when sinful man approaches him, dissolves into nothing, is the holy God appearing to us. But what has changed? We have a better mediator, the mediator Jesus Christ. And so right here, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is talking about the benefits and blessings that we enjoy. And I dare say that's what more people, most Christians today are aware of. They're aware of, oh, I've got it so much better. Oh, I got grace and they had law and, and oh, it's, you know, God's just acting differently now. Friends, I want to show you now after having shown you how this is the same God, but we have a better covenant, that's what makes the difference. It is not that God has changed. He does not change. He is still holy. And yet, I'm going to show you two things now right here. The paragraph before, we are being exhorted, that's you and me today, to holy living. And the reason is because of the holiness of God. If we look to the holiness of God, even now as Christians who have the better mediator, Jesus Christ, we still look to the holiness of God as a motivator for holy living. And so we're going to look at that. And then we're even going to look at what comes right after, which is that there is a greater judgment when the holy God will finally appear at the last day. So let's look at those two passages. So Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 says this, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people, notice this, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yes, Yes, that's right. That's what the Bible always said. And pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, carefully, saints, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. What are we willing to give up the pursuit of holiness for? Is it another buck? It's an extra dollar? It's to be able to have a better car, a better house, a bigger pool? What is it? People are willing to give it up for. We don't want to be like Esau. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Friends, do you see how in Exodus 19, the holiness of God and the fear and the awe and the reverence enables God's people to live a holy life. That's why the Ten Commandments come after, after seeing the holiness of God. We understand why 
we are driven to obey. We must be like God. We must be holy, for he is holy, as the book of Leviticus declares. But more than that now, saints, there is also the threat of judgment to those who belittle the holiness of God, who mock the holiness of God, who loathe the holiness of God, who reject the holiness of God. And it turns out, according to the writer of the Hebrews, this manifestation of the holiness of God at the last day will be far more traumatic and awesome than in Exodus 19 at Sinai. Look at Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, that's the Israelites, much more shall we, Christians, not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken as of the things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, it isn't that the holiness of God is gone. It's that it's been temporarily veiled, but one day it's coming, and it will be more powerful, more awesome, more brilliant than Israel ever saw at Sinai. At Sinai, only the earth shook. At the last day, heaven and earth will shake, and nothing in this world that people live for will remain. Only what we do for Christ shall last. The holiness of God being summoned in the new covenant to enable God's people to live holy lives. He ends in verses 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, listen friends, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, we need to recover in awesome reverence and fear of the holiness of God. As I hope I've shown you this holiness of God, not just what it means in the words, what it means conceptually, what it meant to Israel many thousands of years ago under a different covenant. But what we've also seen is that that same holy God who appeared in the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire and the trembling and the shaking at Sinai is the God we are called to serve. It's the God we know in Jesus Christ. The reason we don't experience condemnation, the reason we don't have to shake in the way the Israelites did is not because of anything in us, it is not because God has fundamentally changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Holy, holy, holy. It is not because we've changed and we've gotten so much better and we're more moral than this person or that person or I'm more moral than I was 10 years ago. Friends, the answer is the mediator. 
the better mediator, Jesus Christ. That is the reason we can approach God in a new and living way with boldness. We with Moses can go up to the top and past, past even where Moses was able to go because we have a better mediator. But friends, that in no way eliminates this sense right here in Hebrews 12 of the awe and the reverence that is due the holiness of God. Friends, this is not only important for your walk with God, which it is, but I look out into the world and like I told you, there is no fear of God before so many people's eyes. People do not fear God. And they don't fear God because in my estimation, it's not because they forgot God was loving. Oh no, a lot of people have a God of love, a God of permission that lets them do whatever they want to do. But it's because we've lost sight of the holiness of God. How are we going to get our culture, our nation, to acknowledge the holiness of God? Friends, the answer begins with us. We acknowledge the holiness of God. The Apostle Peter, writing to godly wives who had ungodly husbands in his epistle, said this, And you wives... Love and respect your husbands without a word so that he, this man who's being disobedient to God, apart from a word, may be won over by your holy, reverent conduct. Have you ever noticed sometimes in our culture we're past words? It's not that words don't matter, but sometimes in life, in relationships, and in politics, you've said what you've wanted to say a thousand times. It's not going anywhere. It's falling on deaf ears. Sometimes you just need to show people. That's what Peter urged these wives. If you've got an enemy, show him what holiness looks like. Show him what holiness to the Lord looks like. Church, saints, show the world who's doing what is right in their own eyes. There's no fear of God. They've forgotten, ignored, and loathed the holiness of God. Let's show them what the holiness of God looks like by living holy lives out of the gratitude, the love, the grace, the awe and reverence that we owe to the holy, holy, holy God who has reached out and saved wretched sinners through our better mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning and I acknowledge with your word that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, heaven and earth is full of your glory. Lord, I just pray for my friends my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe those who are afar off, they're tuning in today, but they have not wanted to draw near to God, perhaps even because they rightly sense that God is holy and that sinful man cannot approach holy God on their own. But Lord, we thank you that through Jesus, the mediator better than Moses, with a covenant better than the covenant at Sinai, we are able to come before a holy God because we have been made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, out of our fear, 
our reverence, our awe, as well as our love and gratitude. We pray today that your Holy Spirit would begin to create in us hearts that are increasingly holy in their motivations, bodies that are increasingly holy in our actions, words and speech that is increasingly holy in their communication, that we would be witnesses to the world doing what is right in their own eyes, that there is a God in heaven and he is holy and he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. And it is a fearful thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of an angry God apart from the mediator, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to bring the good news of this mediator that is able to bring sinful man to a holy God in a way that their deepest longings that they were made for can finally and only be satisfied. Lord, I pray for a blessing now on your people. I pray for a blessing this week. I pray on all those lives they will come into contact with, whether it's mothers and fathers at home with their children, that they would display the fear and reverence of the holiness of God in their lives. Husbands and wives, if they are speaking profanely to one another, if they are belittling one another, if they are hurting one another, betraying one another, we pray that they would fear you. And out of fear of your holiness, they would change their behavior in their marriage. Lord, we pray for those who are in business and they are engaged in corrupt practices. Lord, we pray that they would encounter the holiness of God, that they would change the way they're doing business. Even if everyone else is doing it, every non-believer in the planet is doing it, Heck, even believers are sinning in these ways. Lord, we pray we would fear your holiness and we would not do business in any way that robs you of your glory. Lord, I pray for our country. I pray for our nation. I pray for the churches all over the nations. Lord, I pray that people would fear you. They would acknowledge your holiness. They would not reduce your holiness to something in creation they would violate the creator-creature distinction, making your holiness a standard of their own devising of some other created thing or person or group. But you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, use us as your witnesses. I pray your holiness and your reverential fear would fall upon this nation. I pray people on the left and on the right and in the center and every other place would fall on their knees in worship of the God who is holy. We pray for a revival in our country. Pray for a revival in the world. I pray for my brothers and sisters joining us from outside the United States. Lord, I pray for the holiness of God to come home to them today. A knowledge of God, of his holiness. There would be revival in their nation, Lord. Whether the gospel has ever been there before or not, we pray for a mighty move, an expression of your holiness, and a transformation of lives that are holy to the Lord. I just pray for this blessing now over this, these saints. In Jesus' name, amen.